Faith in Capital Friends, or should I say, Faith in Capital Family. Today we are speaking with Charles Holmes on George Woodby, who was arguably the most famous black socialist Christian in the United States in the early 1900s. He joined up with the Socialist Party of America immediately after its founding in 1901, and while aspects of his analyses and practice certainly merit our critique, which we'll get into, Woodby, as a formerly enslaved black socialist preacher committed to abolishing capitalism and white supremacy, stands as a beacon for Christians in the United States committed to justice, love, and liberation. Charles and I discuss what uh, he got right and what we think he got wrong, but I hope you are moved by the militant spirit and dedication of our comrade and faithful follower of Christ, George Woodby. Now, with that said, I hope you enjoy the conversation and check out links in the show notes. Um, thank you so much to all who share this show with friends uh, or uh, leave iTunes and Spotify ratings and reviews, which help boost and amplify the show. So yeah, I will leave you with that and I'll catch you at the end of the episode. Charles Holm, it is so good to have you and to be hanging out with you tonight. I really enjoyed your dissertation on the would-be's in part, but but you know George Woodby and and a couple other persons as well. So uh, I learned a lot. It, I, I was telling you earlier, it really sparked my interest in studying the history of of socialism and, and communist struggle here in the U.S. But it, it's very much aligned with everything that faith and capital. You know, we're always talking about the how class and race and gender, you know, how those are inseparable. Also, the relationship between being a religious person and the committed to political struggle and how those, you know, our religious perspectives and, and kind of frameworks can either support and uphold the systems of domination and exploitation, but also how they can serve as a catalyst and as a fire for uh, uh, other forms of political philosophy. Anyways, loved it. Really excited to have you, and um, I appreciate what you what you've been up to. I appreciate that. I'm happy to be here. Uh, yeah. So uh, you want to introduce yourself, and then, uh, folks, we're talking about uh, a black socialist preacher named George Woodby tonight, and we can kind of uh, dive in from there. But Charles, before we do that, why don't you uh, just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, so my name is Charles Holm. I am located in Austin, Texas, where I've been for the last eight years um, studying the early black socialist tradition. Um, just received a dissertation from the University of Texas um, last summer um, for my dissertation, which was largely on Reverend Woodby's uh, black socialist thought uh, from a small town in Nebraska. Um, and which is where I first discovered would be sort of getting interested in socialist politics in high school, um, wrestling with my own questions over faith at the time. Uh, would be was a black Baptist preacher uh, active in Omaha, Nebraska for a while. Um, so that kind of spawned my original uh, interest. Uh, I've been a union organizer. I've been a bartender. I've been a summer school educator. Um, I've worn many hats, uh, but I'm excited to be here today to talk about uh, black socialists, um, the black radical tradition, and Reverend Woodby's life and legacy in particular. So, right on. 
Cool. Let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, What's the greatest contribution George Woodby continues to make toward our present moment today? That's a good question. I, I, I'm not really sure. I think one of the things that I find most impressive about Woodby's career, um, including his career after um, his uh, act, most active years in the Socialist Party and also his decades of organizing before. It's just his relentless commitment to building organization, to propagandizing his ideas and the ideas of uh, the movements um, and causes he was involved with, whether that was uh, women's suffrage, labor rights, financial reform, um, struggles against Jim Crow and the convict leasing system, to his later involvement in uh, civil rights struggles through the NAACP and um, groups like Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. I think um, his writings on socialism in particular um, are a great example of somebody who's thinking consciously about the kind of audience he needs he wants to reach with his message and is tailoring his writing style um, and methods of organizing around the need to build a mass um, socialist organization. Uh, He doesn't speak in sort of this, you know, untranslatable theoretical language, although Woodby was a highly educated, highly intelligent individual. He spoke in the language of a Baptist preacher uh, to his congregation. and also his belief in democracy um, and democratic decision making, both inside um, the Socialist Party and also elsewhere. I think that for would be socialism, uh, if it meant anything, it meant if it meant anything other than right workers ownership and control of the means of production. It also meant the democratic uh, right um, decisions that that would entail. Um, and he made de- democracy a central value in his organizing and his socialist philosophy. I don't think that's true, right, in every socialist movement mm-hmm. or every socialist organization today, but he insisted upon it. So, yeah, that's cool. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, w- some of the things I learned from like preparation for this was that he was a militant agitator and mobilizer, right? Constantly. Um, educating folks, but also starting churches and and participating in the starting of, of a plurality over the over the several decades, uh, several different organizations as well. So to me, that unfortunately is actually kind of rare for today. You know, we're we're not a very organized people uh, today. You know, there is a lot of education happening, but especially following the end of formalized uh, slavery, chattel slavery in 1865, we see this burst of a lot of black churches starting. And he was one of those early black preachers who were helping. He literally helped start churches uh, across, you know, different across the Midwest. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, his greatest legacy probably outside of his significance as the leading black socialist in the first decade of the 20th century I mean, his most important legacy, and this is a legacy forgotten, um, you know, in the biographies of his socialist career, but also in the communities he lived in, was that he established Baptist congregations in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and California, new uh, congregations, uh, several of which continue to exist today and remain sort of the bedrock 
um, parts of black communities in those towns. So he helped he helped sort of establish um, the church he was married in uh, in Emporia, Kansas. In 1873, he was married to a woman named Annie Woodby, who uh, we'll talk about later, I'm sure. That church still exists. He helped establish Calvary Baptist in Wichita, Kansas, which still is in um, uh been in continuous operation since it was formed in 1876. And then uh, Mount Zion Baptist Church in Omaha, Nebraska, which I believe is the largest black church in Omaha, Nebraska, still to this day. He served as the first sort of minister um, to that congregation when it was first formed in 1883, I think. And when I say first formed, I mean officially, because these congregations existed before the building of a church, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And would be understood the church as not necessarily depending on the existence of the physical structure. Of course, but sure. the fact that he was involved in these communities, um, I think is important. And it's sort of like a um, an invisible legacy, but a, a meaningful one, especially as these churches continue to be involved in organizing and advocacy for the rights and dignity of the communities they serve. Yeah. And as your dissertation also brought out, he also had influence uh, among particularly Christian circles at the beginning of his life and end of his life in Tennessee as well. Uh, But uh, as you mentioned, his writings, you know, once he joins, uh, he's kind of a part of the the early founding of the Socialist Party in America. His writings were pretty key to the propaganda of the party. And in his head, I think he was he's really writing to black Christian workers who he also had to militantly like advocate uh, to like for within this Socialist Labor Party of America that is founded at, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. But it, it, I, I think that's also interesting is that this is an incredible speaker, an incredible orator. Um, and he he's yeah, he's just a he's just a brilliant thinker and articulator. But he's thinking in in speaking to black Christians, you know, primarily throughout black Christian working class people, primarily throughout his life, uh, and within the party, you know, they they eventually are like, uh, they, you know, they take his writings, they take his his incredible skills, and they utilize it for the propagandizing towards social struggle. Yeah, so that's this is like a little known fact. A lot of people. Um, So he joined the Socialist Party of America that was founded in July 1901 in Indianapolis, less than a month after its uh, formation. But already before that, the Nebraska press was running articles about the socialist revival meetings he was holding um, in the area around Omaha. So that gives you sort of a sense that he was already committed before the party even formed. and I think he probably joined the Socialist Party because of their uh, inclusion at their founding convention of a statement specifically reaching out to black workers, inviting them to membership. I think that had a significant impact on Woodby's uh, decision to join. But as an orator, too, um, I mean, Woodby's audiences, I think Woodby probably reached just as many, if not more, white workers um, with his uh, writings and speeches as black workers. But you're right that he was very intentional 
um, about the content of his uh, writings and the language that he used in making it something that would appeal to um, black audiences. And although the Socialist Party, you know, for the first two decades of ex its existence, didn't really have a formal um, plan of action or commitment to challenging um, anti-black racism or explicitly to recruiting black workers, at least nationally, there were influential sections of the party that did very much see the potential for Woodby's work. So uh, the Appeal to Reason, a newspaper located in Girard, Kansas, just for every edition was advertising Woodby's first text, what to do and how to do it. Um, it would publish letters from black comrades or white comrades saying what an effect this text was having in organizing um, black workers uh, in their locales from the eastern United States to the south to the northwest. Um, and then in 1908, he went on this big national speaking tour um, in part to drum up support for Eugene Debs's presidential campaign and even non socialist newspaper um, reports talked about the success he was having in mobilizing black voters um, and black members into the socialist party. And one of the very first speeches he gave as a socialist um, organizer after he moved to California was in a black church. And he lectured not on, you know, the question of class or the ABCs of socialism, the topic of his lecture was the history of the Negro race in America, right? That was the literal title. So he was using black history in black churches to um, preach what I call socialist sermons to predominantly black audiences. Um, and that's an interesting and important part of his work for the Socialist Party that we don't know enough about. Absolutely. Yeah, so so Woodby offers a lot to us, I would say, uh, especially for our particular moment where the socialist-communist struggle here in the U.S. has been decimated after uh, decades of anti-communism, uh, U.S. kind of uh, American exceptionalist ideology. Um, and But just to name three things that, that popped in my mind um, that I think will be fleshed out in the rest of our conversation. Number one, this is a formerly enslaved person who understood that after slavery and still under capitalism, black people were not free from exploitation and misery. And that class struggle for the establishment of socialism was the means for ending that exploitation and misery. I think that's a that's that's a really, really important contribution that he that his work, his life, um, both his you know words and his writing, but also his actions still contribute to us today. The second thing was that uh, he's a black socialist preacher, right? He connects the struggle for socialism and communism um, as, or he doesn't really, like, I, I don't know, like, I feel something similar to him in that it, it's not like I'm I'm trying to intellectually bring these two together and, and that it's hard. It's just like, as a Christian, he, he says, oh, no, I have to be a socialist, right? As a Christian, well, of course, I'm going to be for communism and that we're going to have to do what we have to do. So, so he's also unique in that his religious faith compels him towards this uh, political uh, particular ideology. And then the third thing, um, and this is perhaps a good transition point, is that he also, I think he understands the struggle for socialism as a feminist struggle as well. So let's go ahead and talk about Annie and George Woodby. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the populist years of George and Annie Woodby? And yeah, yeah. And then eventually we'll talk about that transition from the prohibition populist decades towards a more explicitly socialist consciousness. Yeah. So the 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 remaining um, singularly influential work on Woodby is a book called Black Socialist Preacher by Philip S. Boner, which um, is out of print. Uh, first published, I think, in 1983 or something. And Boner uh, talks about Woodby's conversion to socialism as this process after briefly being involved with the Populist Party um, and the Prohibitionists, hearing Eugene Debs speak, reading a book by Edward Bellamy, who was a novelist called Looking Backward. And then, you know, this was his introduction to the fundamental principles of socialists or whatever. Um, what people don't know um, is that he actually spent two decades almost inside the Prohibition Party um, and the Populist Party, uh, which was actually called the, the uh, what was it called? The People's Party. Um, so often we refer to the populist movement and reduce it to its political expression through, through this party called the People's Party. The populist movement actually was much greater than that and includes prohibitionists, um, groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, etc. Um, and it's my belief that actually George Woodby was introduced to socialism much earlier um, than most of us would assume, largely probably through the political work and influence of his first wife, a remarkable woman, uh, Annie R. Gooden. Uh, she was born in Pennsylvania in the 1850s. Perhaps she was born free or enslaved. We don't really know much about her. Um, but her father was a preacher, and she came to Kansas around the same time as George's family did, uh, leaving Tennessee um, in the early 1870s. And um, she was an orator, a preacher, an intellectual. These are the qualities that originally attracted him to her. Um, he wrote two volumes of poetry to her, um, <laughs> handwritten, that I've been granted access to by their descendants. It's not very good poetry, but you get this sense that like he, she was his intellectual um, superior. She, yeah. He was actually nervous about introducing himself because she was such a brilliant speaker on questions of history, theology, politics, uh, and especially the question of suffrage. So Annie got involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which um, at the time was headed by a woman named Frances Willard, um, who came to identify herself as a Christian socialist and moved from the position that right people are poor because they drink because they have these addictions because they're intemperate to a position that people are drink and are intemperate um and turn to these other ways of alleviating their suffering because they are poor right and so we have to solve the condition of poverty before we can preach um this sort of moral righteousness against uh the saloons and alcohol etc um, and through the WCTU, they joined the Prohibition Party, which in the 1880s and for most of the 1890s was the only major political party that endorsed women's suffrage. Um, so the would-bes together um, really 
establish a name for themselves as orators around questions like women's suffrage. They talked, uh, they delivered speeches, not just in Nebraska, but throughout the Midwest, uh, as far as way as Wisconsin and Colorado, um, the Dakotas, uh, they attended the national conventions of the Prohibition Party in 1892 and 1896. And they were speaking also on questions of class, on the conditions of minors in Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, and sort of condemning this um, position within parts of the party that said we should abandon all these more all these reform issues and only focus on the question of prohibition, prohibition of alcohol. The would-be said no, and they joined with others in supporting sort of a mass reform party that would uh, receive support from workers, receive support of black and white labor in the South, um, and be able to sort of challenge both the Republican and the Democratic parties with a real alternative, right, at least in the electoral booth. Um, so they left the prohibition in a prohibition party in 1896 when it did, uh, just what these, uh, opponents of theirs threatened to do, which is adopt a single plank platform solely focused on the question of prohibition. They split from the party. Um, even the New York times ran an article that talked about how George would be led sort of a revolt against the convention and they went and founded uh, another party called the National Liberty Party, um, endorsing women's suffrage, endorsing the eight-hour workday, endorsing all these reforms against child labor for the abolition of convict leasing, etc. Um, but you know, it was a splinter party. Uh, it didn't really get off the ground, um, and this was around the same time as the socialist. Uh, organizations in the U.S. were sort of restructuring themselves into what later became the Socialist Party. Um, and unfortunately, it was around the same time that the People's Party began a policy to adopt a policy of what they called fusionist um, campaigns, where in 1896 and then later in 1900, the People's Party endorsed William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic Party's candidate, as their presidential candidate. Um, in 1896, the Woodbees did not get on board with that, but in 1900, um, they did end up campaigning for Bryant on the, um, People's Party ticket, not as Democrats. They never entered the Democratic Party, and there's some confusion around this, right? Woodby never joined the Democratic Party, um, but I think... Right, lacking the alter lacking a real electoral electoral alternative, um, they sort of bit their tongues, um, swallowed their pride, and campaigned for Bryant. What's interesting is that immediately after that campaign, not just you know, not the next year, not two years later, weeks after Bryant's campaign failed in 1900. George Woodby was giving socialist revival meetings and lectures on socialism all across um, mm. Nebraska. Um, so he he sort of was just like tired of it. Um, unfortunately, Annie died in April of 1901, um, shortly after the 1900 election and just months before the Socialist Party was formed. But it's my contention or my belief that she really had a major influence. Her... Um, 
the central commitment that they placed in the struggle for women's suffrage in particular um, and their commitment to third party politics had a tremendous influence on his own sort of gravitation towards the socialist party. Um, and even as preachers, like there's a black newspaper in Omaha called the enterprise, which ran a couple of challenges in the 1890s that not just George would be, but Reverend Annie would be and Reverend George would be issued to these other preachers in the community around the question of suffrage from a biblical point of view. And they said, you know, the Bible teaches full equality, equal pay for equal work, equal rights to the franchise, um, all of these things, right? So um, she deserves more attention uh, as a radical and intellectual um, as her husband in that sense. Yeah. And this is such a fascinating period in my mind because there's so much happening I mean, to really understand the the development, the movement of contradictions across the world in terms of colonialism. Right. Uh, the And then we have the development and the contradictions happening with the international communist movement. Scientific socialism is really just being birthed uh, at the at the end of the 19th century, and it's and I would argue it's not really synthesized until 1917, uh, and it's uh, it's put into practice, and the first world historical revolution is successful, um, and which kind of helps synthesize really what Marxism is compared to all these other kinds of um, Marxism in name or or complete like rejection of what Marx and Engels were saying. Uh, of course, like with LaSalle and, and others. So so there's contradictions between colonialism, contradictions within the international communist movement. There's struggle, uh, political, you're interesting contradictions happening within the United States. And then there's also uh, struggle happening within the socialist movement in the United States, particularly. So I, I think there's just so much happening here. And it's interesting to see how these two are very, very... Uh, politically committed, politically involved, and they transition from this more broader, like people's populist uh, approach to things. They understand how things like poverty and uh, and sexism and racism are all interconnected. But they're moving from a a populist perspective perhaps earlier on and eventually George becomes more consciously socialist I, again I think it's also interesting going back to what you said at the very beginning that this isn't the first time when he engages Debs it's not the first time he he is being influenced by socialism and I think there this is it's it's actually kind of tricky because what I think angles helpfully uh, kind of um, helpfully introduces us to is that there is this there is a difference between what we call utopian uh, socialism versus scientific socialism and it's not it's not this this really isn't something that as clear cut I think that we can really um, flesh out at this moment but um, he is influenced by a Christian socialism right a, a, a religious socialism that existed long before a more concrete and scientific socialism is being birthed in this moment and so he's he's influenced by socialism he you know it's not it's not a new idea but then he engages Debs and he decides uh, he has a moment where he's more consciously and explicitly moves from the populist parties towards, no, I'm a socialist and this is what we got to do. So let's go ahead. Yeah. Can you kind of say a little bit more about that? Because at the turn of, at the turn of the 20th century, George 
writes of himself, right? And of course, is preaching as a formerly enslaved person who wished for all workers and particularly black workers everywhere, quote, to be free from the slavery of capitalism, end quote. So yeah, tell us about his transition from prohibition and populist uh, populist politics toward an explicitly socialist ideology and membership within the Socialist Party of America. Yeah, so one, just on the Debs thing, you know, Debs started as a Democrat um, and was also a member of the Populist Party for a while. I think he even was almost nominated a Populist Party presidential candidate in 96 and turned it down. So what people forget when they met, they talk about Debs' influence on Woodby is that Debs sort of had the same uneven road to socialism and the Socialist Party that Woodby did. And they were both sort of moving in the same direction for almost a decade. It just so happened that Debs was involved in the formation of the organization itself. And I think that's what it took for Woodby to actually make the leap, right? He was looking for a political organization there wasn't one. The socialist parties that existed were sort of either dominated by German-speaking sectarians, largely, or they were largely racist, nativist, um, Anglo-Saxon, uh, English-speaking, you know, born and bred American white supremacists, right? Yeah. Who called themselves socialists. And Debs and the people around the formation of the SP represented something else. And that's um, why that's why I was naming like all those different kind of contradictions that were happening uh, generally in, yeah. in you know, particularly because because we could get lost in like this individual story about about an individual named George Woodby who who chose these things for himself really but that's 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 not a historical materialist understanding and so kind of grounding him in these historical contradictions I think helps explain why perhaps he was likely to go one way and not the other um, yeah. yeah um. I mean, he moved. He moved on a lot of things, as a lot of people did. He he started out as sort of having a colonialist um, imagination when it came to Africa, for example. He and Annie, they dreamed of being missionaries in Africa, and they wrote letters about sort of like the the value of Liberian emigrationist schemes, right? But then by 1908, he's spouting sort of like a principled internationalism at the SP's national convention. Or, you know, they moved from a party, the Prohibition Party, which became very much like English should be the only language taught in our schools, and we should keep out immigrants from these countries, etc., to being one of the most principled socialists internationally on the question of, right, we are the workers of the world and borders mean nothing to us, right? And to impose borders is to impose a an anti-socialist position on the class movement. So, but to get to get to your question of um, his his articulation of capitalism as a form of slavery, um, often when you read um, sort of histories of the white left in particular, uh, there are some really important critiques to be made about the um, usage of slavery as a metaphor for wage labor or the way that white workers um, appealed to white audiences through this language of wage slavery and this is insistence that, you know, uh, this is a new and actually even worse form of slavery than what we had in the U.S. prior to the Civil War because, you know, at least then, the argument went, right, slaves as property had to be taken care of, right? They they had to be treated with a certain level 
of respect due to the fact that they represented a form of capital, right? Whereas under capitalism, um, right, workers are not, they're disposable, right? It's not that I own you outright permanently. I, I'm buying your labor power. I'm going to exploit you for as much uh, as you can take or you'll let me. Um, and if you have a problem with that, I'll just hire somebody else and exploit them. So you can starve to death, right? I don't care. You don't represent capital to me. If you starve and you die, it doesn't hurt my profits. So this was an argument that existed on in the socialist um, party at the time. But to have somebody who was formerly enslaved make the case, right, that capitalism rented, represented a form of slavery, um, I think has a different kind of significance. And would be made some of those arguments as well about it being in some ways a worse form of slavery, but that's an important qualification. Um, he and even Debs never said, you know, this is across the board worse. They said in some cases, right, in some respects, this new slavery is worse than the old slavery. Um, but it wasn't an original argument. Frederick Douglass made similar arguments uh, in the 1880s. Um, and these, I mean, they were making these arguments based on the objective reality of the post-Reconstruction South. I mean, things, freedom, right, to starve was imposed upon large sections of the recently emancipated South, not just black, but also white uh, laborers. It was not like materially people were better off, right? And there's this myth in the way that we talk about American history that, you know, things just keep getting better and better. But there was a depression. Um, people were couldn't find work. Um, and if you didn't have land and you didn't have a job, you ended up uh, incarcerated and you ended up uh, in a system called convict leasing, which was really little different than um, the previous condition servitude people had just fought to abolish. So, um, you know, Woodby's Woodby's articulation there actually comes out of a black radical abolitionist um, tradition of political theorizing and radicalism that includes Frederick Douglass in some ways. And even in Kansas, where they were, um, where he and Annie got married in the 1870s, in the 1880s, there's a Bureau of Kansas Kansas Labor uh, and Statistics report that quotes various um, black laborers about their conditions, conditions, and they're they're all anonymous. But one's listed as a laborer and minister, and his quoted remarks are that you know people are beginning to realize that this system is not built for us that the purpose of this system is to take as much from us as possible, giving us nothing in return. And our elected officials are not representing our true interests. And the colored people are waking up to this is the way his quote ends. And Eleanor Marx, Karl Marx's daughter, actually quotes this, quotes this passage, interestingly uh, enough, in a report to European socialists that she publishes in the 1890s. And that quote very well could have come from somebody like George Woodby at the time. I mean, I don't know, that's speculation, but a Kansas uh, labor and minister um, from the black community in Kansas in the 1880s, 
That's what Woodby was saying in 1903 when he writes for the Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. And just one more interesting factoid, um, Chase. In 1895, a year before Woodby allegedly was introduced to socialist principles by hearing Eugene Debs speak, speak in Omaha, he delivered an Emancipation Day um, keynote address in a small town called Clarinda, Iowa. And it was called The Lessons to be Drawn from Emancipation. And he talks about Haiti, he talks about Latin America, and he talks about the U.S. Mm. And then he talks about uh, the question of the relationship between capital and labor. And the newspaper report uh, of the event says that he came to the conclusion that there were other forms of slavery and that there was such a thing as wage slavery. So that was a year before hearing Deb speak and yep. eight years before he wrote that in one of the best selling pamphlets the Socialist Party ever had, right? Um, yeah. Uh, he, he was clear. He was not duped by outside white socialists or whatever. He was not speaking in metaphor. He really came to the conclusion, which I think is the right conclusion, that capitalism is not a system of freedom, mm-hmm. but a system of slavery. You know, I think on one hand, it, particular conditions we can speak to we can compare whether the conditions of of a worker is you know better or worse than the condition uh, of a slave i think generally it's it's really incorrect to say that life in in conditions for wage workers um is worse than being a slave but um i do think that there is there is also a, a pushback to even kind of compare those two and I think at least having that conversation of this is one form of exploited labor and then this is um, a different form of or a different way of exploiting labor power, seeing how they mirror and how they differentiate is is very, very important because there are large sections of working people across the world today who they, they can't move. They can't just move from one place to another. Um, and they have a very, very short lifespan, right? They, they are uh, regions of the world are doomed to working in terrible conditions and dying super, super early. And so I think it's wrong to, again, to try and say, well, is, is life under capitalism worse than life under chattel slavery? Mm, I, I wouldn't go there. But I would say that understanding how we are not free under capitalism and how there's super exploitation uh, because of imperialism and colonialism that persists, like and, and that those conditions are so egregious, that really undermines that liberal perception of, boy, slavery happened a long time in the past, and now now things are like they're pretty good, or or at least they're like sig- you know significantly better for the majority of people across the world. That's a liberal lie that reproduces bourgeois, brutal imperialist exploitation of people here in the U.S., but um, even more so across regions of the world. Yeah, I I just want to add, too, that I think that, um, it, I mean, there's deba- there are debates and conversations about this, and sometimes I think the terminology is just, um, is misleading itself, because people, you know, like you said, to say that racial chattel slavery um, and to compare that to capitalism, right, as sort of worse or capitalism being worse, right, is inappropriate. I agree. But I also think that, right, we we fail to see that the comparison 
shouldn't be between chattel slavery and capitalism, but maybe between chattel slavery and wage labor. Because chattel slavery and capitalism were not mutually exclusive, right? Um, and Marx actually makes this distinction a couple of parts, a couple times himself. He distinguishes between sort of ancient, um, more trans-historical forms of slavery and slavery under capitalism, chattel slavery under capitalism. Yes. He says it becomes more exploitative, more brutal, more vicious, but more important to the economy because it's it's now a form of slavery whose purpose is the production of commodities mm. and the realization of profit on the market. So even when we talk about slavery itself, we have to be um, sort of historically cognizant that slavery as an institution itself is not some monolith. Um, and we also need to recognize that like capitalism is not the negation of slavery, right? Capitalism, um, right, in 1850, U.S. capitalism, you know, was a thing prior to the abolition of chattel Absolutely. capital. Exactly. And, right, the banking finance capital in this country, right, was built out of the profits realized through the production of cotton. And cotton was produced by chattel enslaved um, black labor. So um, it, it's a complicated question, but I think you're right. I mean, the main point I think that Woodby makes is that any form of slavery, any form of unfreedom is contrary to the laws of God on the mm -hmm. one hand, right? In his sort of reading of biblical scripture um, and his theology, but it's also, you know, as Marx would say, uh, contrary, right, to the science of socialism, right? Which is the science of the class struggle, um, to use sort of that terminology, right? Marx says, you know, this is the antagonism and any form of oppression and exploitation must be abolished if we are to, right, mm -hmm. uh, push through this antagonism through the end. We can't make compromises with this less brutal form of servitude, right? Yeah. Um, we need sort of a permanent revolutionary um, momentum. Uh, which is yeah. why I like his quote about, you know, the communism being sort of the real movement that abolishes all things. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Know. Yeah. The, yeah. That, that's a really interesting uh, topic for conversation. And um, but I did I did really find it interesting that you have a formerly enslaved person saying, OK, now that, you know, that my uh, people are free from the chattel slavery we are not yet free from all forms of slavery. That is a really interesting person from the mouth of someone who, again, formerly enslaved and then strove to abolish capitalism. Um, we've already started to pull out a lot of the interesting characteristics of Woodby's understanding of his faith in his socialism. Uh, but uh, let's, I, I, I think there are a few things I also wanted to make sure that uh, folks kind of uh, heard from us. On the one hand, you know, socialism was what every reasonable Christian would pursue, I think, for would-be. Um, but socialists also didn't have to be religious. And there was a pretty intense uh, debate happening within the socialist movement, but also between socialists and non-socialist Christians at the time, or, or religious people in general. Also, his position on the U.S., be, or because of his objective position within the U.S., you know, he understood that racism served the bourgeoisie. 
um, and that to be anti-black was to be anti-communist, right? They, there was no successful socialist or communist movement that was going to happen if you were also anti-black like the people who were wanting uh, to expand Jim Crow at the time or even revert all the way back to uh, reinstituting chattel slavery. And so I think that was one of his also really important kind of contributions uh, to understanding his faith in his socialism. He also supported the Bolsheviks against, you know, the the rise of anti-Bolshevism in the U.S. throughout his life. And one of the most interesting things that I learned about through your dissertation was his his anti-U.S. imperialist stance toward nations like the Philippines. Um, today, you know, the struggle in the Philippines, I think, is a really, really important struggle for all struggles across the world for different reasons. Uh, I won't go into it right now, but. He was staunchly anti-imperialist when the Second International fell to pro-imperialist socialists led by the Social Democratic Society in Germany, who were, you know, who now, you know, we we understand them to be uh, revisionists. And so I think that his particular understanding of imperialism was also very principled and very interesting um, as well, because, again, a lot of socialists at that time swung pro-imperialists, they, they supported the war between imperialists. And, um, you know, he had been anti-imperialist for, you know, decades before. Now, a few critiques not unrelated to that was he also, for a time, or perhaps I, I'm interested to hear if you think he actually moved away from this permanently, but he was an immigrationist. He had, he had some kind of settler colonial ideology um, for a time. You know, he wanted to he, he liked the idea of, of moving to Liberia and, and using religion and economy and uh, more liberal pol- political philosophy to basically, perhaps in his words, civilize, you know, the uncivilized Africans. He perhaps he saw himself as a as a more civilized um, African. And he thought that Christianity and economics and, and such could raise Africans out of their backwardness. So he had some settler colonial kind of anti-black ideology for a time. Um, another basic critique I would say was his electoralism. He did believe in this. If you read what to do and how to do it, uh, you'll see that his general plan was very electoral. You know, it's like, let's elect enough people in this, in this county and then in this state and then in this region, and then we can kind of elect our way into power. Now, he was not a pacifist. He understood that if we that if you know this was if this did happen in the U.S., that the bourgeoisie would take up arms and you would and you would have to use arms to defend those electoral victories um, if you wanted to transition through socialism. But uh, essentially, you know, his his work does argue less for a combination of of armed struggle and using reformist work, but it, but what to do and how to do it is explicitly about getting people elected. Um, and then I think this also, my third critique kind of stems from, uh, or this is like a deeper ideological critique, is that he does have a more romantic, idealist understanding of socialism, which is... Um, again, dominant among the socialist parties at the time, which contributes to the electoralism. I think it contributes to his settler colonial uh, ideology uh, for a time. But again, there, there's also some really, really like 
principled revolutionary aspects of a socialism. So, yeah, did you have anything that you uh, – or what did you think about these these characteristics of, of Woodby's socialism? Yeah, so I can say hopefully quickly because um, I know we're stretching um, into over an hour now. But I can say a few things on all of that. Um, first, on uh, I think I mentioned, you know, in the 1880s especially, um, you know, the George and Andy would be both were involved in debates around Liberian emigration. And at the time, um, especially in this letter he published, got published in T. Thomas Fortune's New York Globe, I believe, in 1884. He does talk about um, emig- he, he's pro emigration, um, and he uses the language of like um, African Americans sort of potentially being a civilizing, Christianizing force in West Africa in a positive light. I think that by the time he writes what to do and how to do it, he's um, mo- has moved away from that position. And I base that solely on a partial transcript of this lecture. He actually began giving in the 1880s, but he gave throughout his career as a socialist as well. um, That was titled um, The History of the Negro Race, or alternatively, I think it was called The History of um, Ancient... the history of the Negro and ancient history. And in that transcript that was published in some Los Angeles paper in like 1902, 1903, he um, talks about the conditions of Africa and says, right, that the issues of, of black suffering uh, in the United States, but particularly in Africa, can only be solved once we remove sort of the uh, ex- conditions of exploitation and colonization, which the West, which the white world has imposed on Africa. So he's no longer talking about the West saving Africa, but Mm. the West needing to get out of Africa, right, of capitalism and colonialism being to blame for the problems that exist. Um, So it's not a fully fleshed argument, but I think it suggests that his mentality is changing. As well on... Um, just his uh, viewpoint on colonialism, I think his remarks in 1908 on the immigration question sort of represent a principled socialist internationalist stance that connects to the question of imperialism quite directly. Um, And then, you know, on the question of Bolshevism um, and also on electoralism a little bit, I I think that uh, Woodby's writings especially have a more than clear like electoral bent to them right and a lot of his um speaking engagements nationally were done as part of campaigns to get debs and local socialist candidates elected he also ran for office several times railroad commissioner state treasurer all these things and that began you know previous to the sp but i think one thing that is important to remember and this is true of debs depending on which debs you read too right is that the point of these campaigns was not to get elected um i think debs in like 1908 or 1912 you know remarked to a reporter like you know i wouldn't be doing this if i thought i could get elected right they wouldn't have nominated me um i'm doing this 
as a way to sort of measure and prepare people um, for the struggles that are it's actually going to take to um, build socialism in the United States. And I think Woodby had a similar philosophy. He didn't. It's not written down explicitly, but his um, relationships with the industrial workers of the world, the IWW in California beginning in 1905 um, uh, is somewhat similar to another early black socialist, Hubert Harrison's um, sort of uh, push and pull between electoralism and direct action, not necessarily the question of armed struggle, but other forms of uh, political uh, action, such as industrial unionism and strikes, right? Hubert Harrison would say, Right. To tell uh, black workers in the U.S. South that their power lies in the vote would be an absurd thing to say. Right. In the early 1900s, because they have no vote uh, or it's very limited. And to deny them the right to exercise their real power as workers at the point of production is right. A fatalistic sort of like. Um, doomed approach. If you're wanting to build socialism in the South, workers need to be encouraged to use power, the power that they have, and that is the power they have at the point of production. Um, so, you know, I think the arguments are better fleshed out with uh, in debates around Hubert Harrison's work later on. Um, finally, um, what was I going to say? On the question of Bolshevism, it's really, the evidence is a little um, circumstantial on would-be's support for Bolshevism. But in a letter to Eugene Debs in, in, um, while he was incarcerated in, in Atlanta, Georgia, he does express sort of his optimism. And his, it, clearly it's an expression of support of the Russian Revolution and what the Bolsheviks are doing. He compares it to um the book of acts um i don't know you probably know your bible better than i do but where it describes the early church of people wanting for nothing and sharing everything in common would be says this is what they're trying to do in russia right but in after world war one erupts um when would be discovers uh through mainstream press accounts that socialists in Germany and France have voted for war credits. He is surprised, um, just like Lenin was surprised, almost in disbelief, right? This has to be cap capitalist propaganda. Socialists would never vote for war, capitalist war. Um, but after that, we really don't know his position on the war. He, he goes, he returns to Tennessee in 1916 for the first time since his youth. Um, and begins preaching at churches in Tennessee and Kentucky. But what is there is that some of the headlines um, advertising his sermons, uh, several of them have remarks about the war, and they're titled things like, can we conduct the war in a Christian manner, question mark, and things like that. And I think it's a rhetorical question for Woodby, right? We don't have a copy of his sermon, but I think he would say no. Um, and in another uh, piece of evidence, uh, some recollections he wrote later in life about his time in Tennessee that aren't published, he, there's mention that he's talked to people in his community um, in Northeast Tennessee, and he's been warned, right, don't, don't be too radical, don't talk about socialism 
one of the newspapers even red baited him around this time, 1917, 1918. Like he is a known socialist agitator and we hope he is not preaching the same socialism as the Bolsheviks are something along those lines. Right. Mm. So he's feeling this pressure and he's got to sort of navigate that in a way um, and make choices along those lines. But he never capitulated to the pro-war hysteria that many socialists did both in Europe and the United States. Um, and I think he, he had moved away from that at this point in his life. He's 65, 70 years old as well. Uh, and we just don't hear as much about him at this point. The evidence kind of breaks off, but, um, the fact that he was expressing support for the Bolsheviks in the 1920s, not in 1917, but five, six, seven years later, Mm -hmm. right after the civil war, um, after uh, 14 imperialist countries, including the U.S., had sent armies, dispatched armies to defeat the Bolshevik government, um, I think that gives you a sense of the kind of commitment uh, would be maintained to a socialist political vision and, you know, what I would call a revolutionary political vision and faith. Charles, this has been really, really cool. I loved learning about uh, the would-bes, both Annie and, and George, but particularly, yeah, George's life, his work, his faith, his the development of his thinking. Um, this is also a great kind of introduction or way into thinking about socialism and communism uh, in the U.S. as well, the history. So I really appreciated this conversation and learning from you and your work. Um, and and I'll, also, I you know, I see would-be as a as a great uh, person to to inspire. Uh, the connection between faith and political struggle and um, a really principled commitment to transforming the world. So if we could kind of wrap up this conversation here, you know, Woodby was an agitator and a mobilizer. So how would you say, how, how does his work agitating and mobilizing black Christians for socialism speak to us today? Well, I think like the main thing today, and this is something I struggle with it, you know, finding a socialist organization, finding a a home for these kind of politics today, because the organizations that exist are either so small um, or they're, you know, groups like the DSA, which, you know, there's plenty of good things to say about what it means that the DSA is as big as it is today, but there are major problems with organizations like the DSA too, right? Um, I think would be... um, Woodby's writings, his activities, his um, memberships and political organizations throughout his entire life is one of the main lessons of significant he teaches us, is that to be a socialist means to build organizations and means to organize more people into the movement for socialism. It doesn't mean being an armchair philosopher, um, and it doesn't mean uh, that you can say, well, I'm a socialist um politically but i'm not a member of any organization right that claims socialism or i'm not a member of any organization that fights along working class lines right that first would be was what it meant to be a socialist to be a socialist and to not be in a socialist or communist organization i think would be sort of counterintuitive or antithetical to him right To be a socialist means to be in a socialist organization. The other thing I think is that, you know, times are tough, 
but you got to keep the faith. Um, would be kept the faith um, from going through the defeats of the Prohibition Party on the question of suffrage to, you know, the repression and defeat of the socialist movement um, uh, in the United States, largely, you know, it was never fully defeated because we get the Communist Party, um, a major and significant Communist Party emerged in the 1930s, especially. But, right, he, he never gave up. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a religious maybe question, the way that um, this question of faith is often posed. But I think radicals, revolutionaries, socialists have to have faith in the possibility of a different kind of world existing. And we have to have faith in people's ability to change, in people's consciousness, in the ability of people's consciousness to change, right? We're not born stuck. We change as we exist in the world and change the world around us. That is one of sort of the fundamental teachings of Marxism as well, right? Our consciousness changes through our interactions with the world and each other. And if uh, we're socialists and we're serious about that, then we need to be out there interacting with people and changing their consciousness and not just giving up hope or saying, you know, we've come to the right conclusions and y'all can, you know, fend for yourselves or screw, screw everybody else, right? Um, no, it's your responsibility um, to go out and proselytize, if you will, right? The struggle um, for a world beyond capitalism, for a world free from the slavery of capitalism, as would we would put it. So, absolutely. And and just to piggyback this to to wrap this up, you know, you know, you're talking about to be a socialist is to be a part of organization or to be struggling for organization and to be struggling along and with working class people. Um, you know, I I think it's also the for would be and for myself and I think for listeners as well to be a Christian you should be a part of organizations you should be out there uh you know in uh an accountability not thinking of yourself as a Christian individually or thinking of yourself as a communist individually but committed to these things in real life and and so I think I really appreciate you know what you uh, brought there but also at the very end of the 19th century we can't grasp the nihilism that the masses, I'm sure, were feeling. Because, sure, you know, uh, slavery was overthrown, but that last decade of the 20th century in the U.S. was just filled with the rise of white terror and the solidification of, of white supremacy and the and the um, beginning of, of the Jim Crow uh, kind of domination. Um, and so – and the crushing of these populist – also kind of semi-class conscious uh, developments happening. And so in the face of nihilism, there was deep hope in, in, a, in a turn towards really militant class struggle. So I think both of those things um, about would-be, but also uh, about the masses kind of committing themselves to agitating and mobilizing for transformation was really beautiful. Charles, it's been awesome. I appreciate your work. I look forward to learning can, more from you. Can I say just two more things really quick? Oh, hell yeah. Go, okay, you, so... I talked about Annie Woodby a little bit, and I i mean, I could talk about Annie Woodby for hours longer because she's just an amazing wood woman. Um, but Annie died in 1901, and I just want to make uh, mention of the fact that George remarried in 1908 to a woman named Mary E. Hart, 
who was also a social activist, who was also a socialist um, for a time, was active in church organizing and mission work in California, um, I think helped introduce him to um, the supporters of Garvey uh, on the West Coast. They divorced in 1921, but it's important to you know, mention Mary Woodby's name. He also remarried a third time in 1925 to another woman named Mary Victoria, I believe was her last name. I know absolutely nothing about her. She apparently died in 1925 too, but the women in George Woodby's life deserve more attention. Um, and black women radicals and black women's intellectual history, period, period, just needs to be taken more seriously by um, by the left and people who are trying to learn from this history. And then two, I didn't take up your question on like his romantic view of socialism um, and sort of his romantic idea of Christian socialism. So I just wanted to mention uh, that in his last pamphlet for the Socialist Party, The Distribution of Wealth in 1912, what I think is remarkable is his defense in the last part of that pamphlet of communism, right? And he, he's like responding to this red baiting saying, well, aren't you a communist or are, are, are the socialists different from the communists? And he says, no, we're the same. Like Marx called it communism. We call it socialism. It's the same movement. And he has this quote that says the real difference between, you know, ancient communism or the communism of Christ is that under socialism, we are to work collectively, which as far as I know, the early Christians did not do. So he does sort of like recognize that there's this difference between what you would call scientific socialism or Marxian socialism and the kind of ancient classical Christian uh, communism that sort of inspires him or he uses as part of his uh, propagandizing, right? There it's more about a matter of distribution and sharing things in common. Woodby says modern socialism is about collectively working, right? And um, making production in common as well, as opposed to private ownership. I think that's just an interesting sort of like factoid to throw in there, but really been a pleasure talking to you as well, Chase. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I don't get many opportunities to talk about either would be or my views on socialism so this has been great awesome oh god i'm telling you like i, I love this shit and you you brought some really cool stuff um of course you know in your study and your interests but i but i i really appreciate you chatting with me 